Hello there. It's your host, Noah Nelson here. You've reached episode two of Webbed Toes, the DuckTales footnotes. Fair warning, we're definitely drinking on this episode. On No Persinium, our other show, we'd call this an after dark episode, which means my co-host Zay Amsbury and I are not taking things too seriously. But you'll want to have watched the episodes The Great Dime Chase and The Beagle Birthday Massacre to get into the touch points from the episodes on this episode. This time out, we're talking a lot about story, subverting expectations, and all kinds of things that aren't talking about the plot of the episodes. But hey, uh, you don't exactly want those two spoiled now, do ya? Also, we refer to this show as The Footnotes. So it's not so much an exploration of the relationships between the characters, although we do that, or the plot lines, and we'll do that. It's about all the little things that run off to the side and the, the, the stuff that's kind of working underneath the surface. So get yourself comfy. We're going to be here a while. Uh, this is, uh, 2017 DuckTales episode two. See, I wanted to get that, I wanted to get that beer open. It sounds good. It is good. This is, um, this is the new Belgian, Belgian collection, the triple, the Uh Belgian style ale. Straight out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, Oh, I am, I am drinking vodka bought by a man from Colorado. And that is the tenuous connection that I'm dry. Um, we have we have some serious backers of No Pro in Colorado, so that's that's uh, Colorado. Have, have you spent much time in Colorado? I haven't spent that much, but I've spent a little. No, I, when I was very young, I went there with my grandfather to an anthropological convention, and it's like a weird. It's one of those memories. It's like a weird dream. I was really young, and um, it was a very long time to spend with my grandfather, and it was very weird, but. Uh, uh, I treasure it also. Mainly, I remember ice skating. I remember buying a GoBot and playing with it in the back of a conference hall while he was delivering some paper on physical anthropology. There, there's something, there's something kind of, kind of appropriate, kind of Scrooge McDuckian about about that. Your, my your my off- grandfather was like my grandfather was like a working class Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> if that isn't a contradiction. Yeah, I mean. Well, I, at one point we'll get into we'll get into like the inherent classism. I think we'll save that for the next set. Yes. Uh, of, yes. Um, because the the next set uh, you're gonna meet you're gonna meet a character that really lets us open up that. But this time out we've got we got um, well right before we started you were you were saying what you had what you had prepped on for this time and uh, it was well, it was. We- yeah. We ended last week with you talking about how a great comparison to the, or that you wanted me to think about the DuckTales season structure in relation to Buffy's season structure. And I hadn't looked at Buffy in quite some time. I think the, the, 
I hadn't really thought a lot about Joss Whedon in quite some time. I think something between his, uh, his Me Too, his, his relatively minor, although definitely their Me Too moment, um, and also um, Justice League reframed a lot oh, for yeah. me, for him. Um, and I hadn't revisited anything in a long time. But I did go back and look at Buffy season two and I I've seen it many times it is and looking at it again I really appreciate that it really truly is one of the truly great seasons of uh, episodic storytelling on television ever and just how sharp that show was and how of its time it is how competent it is how much heart it has and then I also watched Ben-Hur. And those two things together have given me a lot of thoughts about the other thing we ended the last episode with, which was thinking about how a large contingent of the current crop of Hollywood TV writers and movie writers put so much store in surprising the audience. Yeah. So so much emphasis on subverting expectations. Subverting expectations, yes. Yeah. That's a, that's a like, much more specific way of putting it. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I, was, I was having trouble. I mean, you were there for it. I was like, oh, how are we formulating this? But yeah, you, you said, when you said it, I was like, oh, that's right. It's about, it's about the subversion. Because I was thinking about this this week. Yeah. Because, you know, it, we're recording this on May 4th. Uh, who knows when it's going to to air? If it ever airs, we're just we just want to talk. We just want to have conversations, but we're recording it anyway. Um, and of course, you know, uh, you know, the, the subversion of expectations uh, has been has been such a. Uh, I mean, it's it's been a contentious thing across genre, uh, particularly big genre media for the past few years. Whether we're talking about the way Zack Snyder approached the DC characters or the way that, you know, Ryan Johnson approached Star Wars. Um, Are we, I mean, when we think about lineage of supporting expectations, do we, for this crop, for this period of time, mm -hmm. are we going back to J.J. Abrams' mystery box? Are we going back to... I mean, to me, in a sense, lost is patient zero here. I, I, I would, I would say, yeah, I would say that that, that idea, I mean, in Lost in particular, I mean, like everyone, because Lost was one of the first shows to sort of have to reckon with the internet, right? Yes, very much so. And, and that show, that show could have gotten away with what it wanted to get away with, if not for those, that pesky internet, <laughs> um, but, but we all know that they got found out, and so then they tried to they tried to ride that wave, and mm -hmm. boy, they just kind of spun and spun and spun. Yeah. And 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 there's like I don't know, and like I mean I've never fully grokked JJ's mystery box, but before we get into all that, because we we are yes, I want to make it clear to anyone who's listening. <laughs> 
which is four people who I can probably name. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, That we are covering episodes three and four. uh, The Great Dime Chase and the Beagle Birthday Massacre. Uh, and the assignments for next time is going to be the next three episodes, which are Terror of the Terraformians, The House of the Lucky Gander, and the Infernal Internship of Mark Beeks, um, which... Holy would, moly, that is a great title. Oh, yeah. Well, and and we're going to be able to get into all sorts of other stuff next time. So we'll... But uh, right now we're in this mode on on story. And the reason why we want to talk about, it, about this stuff, about season arcs, uh, and I don't want to go too far on season arcs because I think we're we've 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 only just begun to dip our toes into the season arcs. Well, of, I, I will say show. one thing that, and because I think last time when we talked about the first uh, three episodes, mm-hmm. uh, what I said was, "Oh, this is extremely competent," and it wasn't quite launching for me at that point. And we should also say Noah has seen all the way up to what is currently coming out with DuckTales. I am seeing all of these for the oh, first time. Oh, no, no, no. So I, mean, I have I'm, not seen... I'm, I'm current no. through the end of season one. So if... if Wait, we, you haven't seen beyond season one? No, because I had just completed it when we agreed to do this. So I've held off. So when we complete... Holy moly. So when we complete season one, right? Like, whenever we do that, that's when... I get to open up the vault on season two. And if, and if, and if we're still on board and we just want to Uh roll right in, we will experience Uh those together. It will be a much different show. Whatever we're doing right now will be very different because we'll be exploring together. But that's also something I'm excited about is having, is having something to watch with you. And I think by then we'll have, we'll have built the context we need to build Mm -hmm. because the thing that I was really taken with in these two episodes is the way the season-long open-ended questions are being built and the way characters are being introduced. Mm -hmm. And there's so much patience there and so much lovely timing there and uh, doing the, well, doing the patient thing of, of letting characters come in when they need to come in. And as the world builds Uh, in particular, um, uh oh man i should write down all of the names but the i've got all the names the new um not gyro although gyro is lovely and i'm I'm, i can't wait to see more from his robot um but uh webby's friend lena yes lena Um, who at the end of the episode we discover is the niece of scrooge mcduck's arch nemesis yes magicka dispel Yes. Um, who, if you know the old show and the and the and the, and the comic books, Magic and Spell is obsessed with Scrooge's number one dime. Yes. Which we were just introduced to in the episode before Beagle Birthday mm-hmm. Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this these, this duology really. I'm I'm actually glad you didn't see Terror of the Terraformians, even though like I thought that was where we were going because that's where I'm I'm at right now, because I feel mm-hmm. like these two episodes set up a hell of a lot of the world, right? Yeah. Great Dime Chase um, gives you so well these three episodes like Day Trip of Doom gave us the Beagles, 
Great dime yes. chase gives us the dime, gives us the money bin, gives us gyro. And, and Day Trip of Doom was also very Webby centric, and it brought Webby into um, the group of younger ducks on an equal footing with the boys. Yes, and and that plays off really well in Beagle Birthday Massacre because yes. I mean. Should we do this in order? Should we do Great Dime and then Beagle Birthday? Because I think yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, I think back. Beagle Birthday has way more going on in it. I agree. Um, and then we'll get into our big theme. So let's start with Great Dime Chase. Um, here's the description: Louis accidentally spends Scrooge's number one dime and turns to Mad Inventor Gyro Gearloose for help to get it back, while Dewey and Webby become entangled in a conspiracy. That's the tagline according to uh, the the Disney fandom, which I pulled up mostly because I needed to remember the names of, of what we were supposed to be doing. Uh, but this is Good super job. useful. Good job. Yeah, that's that's useful, and that does explain it. Although I think the the Dewey and Webby um, to to get into it there, this is a continuation of um, of Dewey's quest to figure out what's up with his mom which we're yes. introduced to at the end of the the Woohoo slash Atlantis pilot. Mm-hmm. And and Webby here is sort of established as like like Dewey Webby in these episodes, they have kind of a thing. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to call it like a romantic thing, but they're definitely no. they're narratively paired off. Well, and, and it's interesting because in the previous episode, Webby was narratively paired off with Louis in a way that I think sort of showed us how how him fronting with her that he is savvy to the ways of the world only to for him to, and then to be revealed as for his savviness to be revealed as his own version of innocence played well off of uh, Webby's version of, of innocence. Um, but I like this. I like this thing of of Webby and Dewey because, um, well, I mean, because he has he has a huge, big-hearted goal that will require adventure, and she is looking for that exact thing. Yeah, yeah, um, and she 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 drives him. She's like she's the bulldog in the relationship. She's yeah. the one who's like she's cheerleading. She's pushing him. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a, it's a little bit of a shift from the Dewey of Woohoo, who is, you know, cocky, arrogant, you know, wants to be a grand adventurer, uh, in the mold of Scrooge, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. in the back half, but doesn't have a lot of depth to him. But, Mm -hmm. but at the end of that episode, he's given, he, he gets his, you know, inciting incident, like seeing a picture of his mom, I think what holding Holding a, a pirate sword, I believe, <laughs> in a painting, and, and up on the and up on one of the crossbeams of the main mast. Yeah, uh, in the middle of what is clearly like some depiction of some grand adventure that Scrooge, Donald, and her were on. And what's great about that also is if you're if you're not familiar with the comics, and I'm not that familiar with the comics, you don't really know Della, uh, who also has a couple of different names uh, in the comic books. Yeah. But you don't really know Della Duck. Um, and she wasn't really a thing in DuckTales, uh, the original show. Uh, right. Almost to like a Cars level of, yeah, but where are their parents? 
uh, type of disturbing kind of like, this is creepy. And so it, it, it's one of these things where it feels like the, the showrunners had that question in their mind when they were kids watching the show. And, and it feels like such an interest. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know that for certain, but that's what it feels like. And it's such an interesting thing to like dial in on because it's, it's a character thing. It's an emotional thing, right? To like, Mm -hmm. what is this relationship that the boys have to their mother? Uh, and how does that work? And then it becomes, it, it starts to open up here a little bit. Um, and, and take us forward in a way that's still fun, but also kind of dark. Um, and, and what's, and what's the deal with Dewey not sharing this with his brothers? Yeah. I mean that, that's a little bit of, God, what was I watching the other day? Oh, I was watching Clone Wars and they definitely played some like, you know, characters get <laughs> some info. surprising things no one else has ever said out loud. Yeah, no, I know. Um, um, well, you know, I didn't always love that show. Um, I still don't always love it. But this last arc was fucking amazing. Um, I, I can't wait to watch it. It's another thing I'm holding off on until I feel like I really need it. Oh, yeah. Well, when, 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 you, when you really need it, like, those four episodes will be there for you now. And they are complete. And they, you, you don't need to watch it. As long as you know who Ahsoka Tano is and who Darth Maul, and that Darth Maul came back to life, you don't know, you need to know mm-hmm. anything else. Um, maybe if you know some about Mandalorians, it helps. And who doesn't know anything about Mandalorians? We all know about Mandalorians now. This is the this way. This is the way. Um, they were playing the game of, oh, a character knows something now, and if they only just said something, everything we know would turn out differently. They're mm-hmm. playing that game. And it's it's only a satisfying game. See, I, I when I was young, I was frustrated by it. When I was a little bit older, I thought it was hack. And now I'm old enough to know that sometimes it's hack and sometimes it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, this was also something that was, I binged this weekend on Normal People which is uh, the adaptation of the, the, the second novel from this Irish novelist uh-huh. um, that came out in like 2017. So it's 12 episodes on Hulu. And it's basically it's an Irish college romance is what it is. And the characters frustratingly are really bad at talking their feelings at each other. Like, uh-huh. um, like to the point where like that is what drives all the drama but every time they do it, it's believable, right? Like, you understand huh. why. Here with Dewey, I guess I just jumped from normal people to DuckTales, for those of you who have seen both. Um, <laughs> here with Dewey, it's a little bit artificial, um, but I do feel that in time, it's going to feel a little more natural. But I have to say, I also sort of, also sort of get it. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we know that one of the, issues for these three brothers is that is differentiation is how are they different from each other um and it's it's played off sometimes as a joke sometimes as a dramatic beat um it's it it's the driver of the episode uh what was it uh oh of the second half of woo woo 
Mm -hmm. uh, which I guess is uh, Escape 2 from Atlantis. Um, and I can understand where, like, how if you're trying to differentiate yourself and you have a secret, then that means you're different. Like, if Dewey has a secret that is that big and he's pursuing it himself, then he is not Huey and he is not uh, Louis, you know? Yeah. I think I think that's that's definitely structurally. And I think you're you're on to something there. And I and I think the show is gonna gonna play prove that out to you uh, about that being one of the drivers. Um, and I think one of the drivers, again, I mean, I haven't re-engaged with a lot of the old, but but compared to my memory of, of the three, you know, we're sort of interchangeable. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, the show does, it, they're just, they're, they have such clearer personalities to me um, than, than what was in my I memory. I don't quite get, like Huey's been a little invisible since uh woo, woo slash escaped you from atlantis for me he'll he takes a front seat in the next episode so okay all right um, got it and and that sort of carries on with like the the cleanliness here of what they're doing um oh, god it's so it's so okay i'm now going to talk about ben hurt yes please do because and here's here's where i'm 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 sitting here going like oh i don't even remember if i've seen ben hurt so I have never seen Ben-Hur. Uh, my girlfriend is uh, in a way that I find adorable, which is good because we're spending all of our time together, is watching every single movie on the AFI list, which is awesome. Um, and so we watched Ben-Hur, and I had never seen Ben-Hur. If you've seen Ben-Hur then you know that if you've never seen Ben-Hur, the first 10 minutes will make you think this is a deeply, 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 deeply Jesus-y movie. Um, which is not to say the movie can be Jesus-y and not good. It just, it's so Jesus-y. Uh, and it's very Jesus-y throughout in a way that ends up being really elegant. And I think that if, um, uh, I understand why both secular and non-secular people would really like, like this movie. Um, one of the things that happened throughout the course of watching the movie is some narrative thread would get set up and I would be like, oh, this is going to happen in five minutes. And every single time I did that, the thing would not happen in five minutes. It would happen in 15 minutes and it would happen after a few different complications and developments and happened. But it wasn't like my expectations were subverted. Mm. It's like my expectation of the event was um, rewarded because the complications deepened and gave more context and more theme and more texture because of how uh, each event moved into the next event. So mm. it, it was played absolutely straight. I mean, if you're familiar, like if you've seen a bunch of movies or read a bunch of stories, then you're going to know what's going to happen throughout the course of this movie. But never, but the events are always made, they're always um, rendered in such a deep and thorough excavation of whatever those events could possibly be that even though you kind of know where it's going to go, it's still a really rich experience of narrative. Mm 
Mm. But it's not, your expectations aren't subverted. They're enriched in a um, surprising and enlivening way. Expound it's not like you bit. suddenly realize that the world is different or the characters are different or right. what this character said they wanted um, in act one, they suddenly don't want in act two, or you actually realize they're, they're not um, a, a Jewish aristocrat in Israel. They're actually a, a psychic vampire masquerading as a Jewish aristocrat in Israel. It's, it's, it's like this character that we have met becomes more rich through the flow of events. And I don't know, watching it, I just, I felt so excited because I felt like I hadn't experienced storytelling that happened that way in a really, really long time. Did they, was it a matter of them giving other dimensions to the characters on the road to the moment? Or or were they... Or was it variations on a theme? Was it like both? Okay. Oh wow. It was both. I mean, at the same it, time, or just some, classic, or alternating in in sequences, like sometimes variations. At the same time, it's it's oh, such Jeremy. classic storytelling. Wow. That theme and action and obstacle are married on a deep and consistent level. There's no moving back and forth the characters are the theme the theme is the story the story is the complication and it's just all working together all at the same time mm. um in the way that classical storytelling really does uh and it's also a high budget action movie it's a entertainment it's a piece of it's a piece of popular entertainment it's the 1952 that, version of fast and the yeah. furious although i'm not sure if it came out in 52 that's that's exactly right actually you know fast and the furious has some has some very straightforward storytelling that is always on theme it's just that there's one theme that is spoken to you over and over and over again it's fam <laughs> that's right because uh, we've become love, a simpler, we become a simpler uh, um, people since, uh, <laughs> excuse me, since um, 1959's uh, Ben Ben Hur. I was only off by seven years. Um, and and watching and watching some episodes from from Angel sort of hooked back into this. I mean, um, may I spoil season two of, of Buffy? Uh, you may spoil season two of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Which came out twenty years ago, or something like that. <laughs> so, so the big twist in the series is that Buffy and Angel, uh, Buffy's the Vampire Slayer, Angel is a vampire, and they are in love, and they finally uh, get together and have sex. And the morning after they have sex, he becomes evil, and that is the entire turn of the entire season. And because Buffy back then definitely was a um using urban fantasy as a metaphor for the experience of high school uh it played out in the exact way that i imagine joss whedon wanted it to and there's a way that this that this could be rendered there's a way that that reveal could be rendered that could feel like oh man we're really subverting this look what we're doing 
here's it comes ah there it didn't it didn't it didn't expect that but that's not the feel of it the feel of it is a a deepening of the emotional environment of the show it doesn't feel like a gotcha it feels like a oh of course of course of course that was built in from the start yes yes i feel that yeah that that's a particularly important thing the the that was built in from the start and you know there can be something you foreshadowing and seeding things in the first act that you know pay off later on like there's a way that it can get formulaic and hacky and you can see it all too clearly um but there's there's a way in which it also th- there's a way to do that where it, you never get that feeling mostly because you you maybe don't notice that it's a thing like and i think ducktales does that a lot with and sometimes they'll tip their hands but ducktales feels like it does it a lot uh in the form of like there's a joke right mm-hmm. someone jokes about something or characters have an emotional moment mm-hmm. uh, and say something uh, in anger, in frustration, um, and or you know then there's or there's just something in the background like floating around uh, that you catch visually. Yeah, and and that that little all that you know it's it's these things that just feel. Uh, it starts off feeling like texture, right? Like mm-hmm. there's something almost fractal about it. It starts off as a texture, but if you if you push in and look a little closer, you see that there's a structure. And if you push mm-hmm. in a little more, you see that structure is actually reflected in the story that you're in. So then you mm-hmm. snap back out, and suddenly, oh my God, I'm in, I'm in that story that's just, that I thought was texture. Mm-hmm. And that is something I've always appreciated in storytelling. I don't Mm -hmm. know if I've always had the ability to articulate what the F was going on. And I'm pretty sure I could not replicate the process if I tried at least Mm -hmm. at first without, without it feeling on the nose and, and, and hacky. It's very, it's very difficult to, It's very difficult to do because it, it requires you have to have a pretty clear sense of not necessarily what every beat is going to be, but I imagine um, that you really need to know what your story is about. Oh, yeah. And by about, I don't mean all the things that are going to happen. I mean, what is it about? And yeah. then you have a a way to figure out whether this whether this or that story beat should or should not be there. And what dictates it is, is this what the story, is this what the story is about? And are these how the characters would behave? And and there's like this period of time when you can sort of wiggle around and figure it out. And I feel like that's where, that's where, that's where at least where I am with DuckTales. Like where I, where I am right now is is in that beginning part where the world is being built and the tone is being built and like it's like how how wacky is it 
how mm. how emotionally grounded is it going to be? How consistent are these characters going to be? Um, and I definitely didn't know, but it's it's starting to get really. And I don't know. I almost feel like maybe that's why there are all these Webby episodes happening. I mean, because hmm. unlike the three boys, Webby is super clear. Yeah, we know who Webby is. I mean, from from the from the bus sequence on the day trip of Doom, which is one of my <laughs> favorite things. Now, <laughs> um, we really know who Webby is, and and because Webby is so grounded, then she can bring us into these stories in such a clear way. No, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like she becomes, she's outsider to their relationship. Yeah. And thus by being yeah. put into their relationship, um, she's able to give us that insight, which kind right. of rolls perfectly into Bugle Birthday Massacre because the episode <laughs> starts off with her, Yeah, you know, Literally being like, you know, she, she doesn't fit in the boat. Uh, yep. And the boys have their own in-jokes. Mm-hmm. And she wants to laugh along with them. And she does laugh along with them. Um, but she gets excluded, even though even though the boys make a concerted effort to be like, no, you don't have to. Like, like I'll stay behind. It's fine. She's like, no, no, no. Like, everyone's being so polite. Mm-hmm that they, you know, that someone's feelings are going to get hurt, right? Because no one's willing to say what it is they really want, which is to right. belong. Um, right. And that politeness then leads Webby to Lena, who is um, launching notes in a bottle uh, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, oh. as a joke. God, I love that exchange. Yeah. Uh, and Webby comes upon her with like all of the, all of the bottles and Lena is far too cool for school. Quite literally, pretty sure she doesn't go to school. Um, and almost basically like rejects her until Webby proves to be, uh, you know, quite adroit, um, with her, her ninja skills. And then the two of them go off on an adventure that quickly devolves into uh, basically the plot of the Warriors. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, and I and I love how. Um, I mean, first of all, there's there's this this setup of the the parental figure and the three uh, and the three children who are all very similar. Um, with the Beagle Boys versus the um, the Duck Boys, yeah, um, and and also how Ma Beagle is Webby's arch nemesis, yeah, yeah, which is which is funny because of course you know, God, yeah, that's true. I mean, she was in the old show; she was always like one of Scrooge's arch nemesis, and she still is. But yeah, she Webby and her are really they're the ones who are yeah. squared off here. In a real now, way. was was Webby in the original series? I... Yeah, Webby's in the original series, and there's actually role. Uh, she's she's Mrs. Beakley's niece. Um, mm-hmm. She's got she's way she's 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 not a tomboy. She is a super okay. girly girl, um, and has the most saccharine voice imaginable. Actually, oh. um, like. 
I, I, having watched an episode, I was like, oh God, Webby's kind of terrible in the old show. And mm. there's actually, if you, if you pay close attention, uh, in the first episode when they meet Webby, there's basically mm. a stuffed doll of the original Webby design that is like stabbed into, <laughs> into the wall in Webby's, That's really funny. in Webby's planning room or whatever that is. Um, so like a, 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 a true negation of, of that, um, imagery and image. Um, the shows, the show is fully aware of its source material and the context oh, of its source material. For sure. Yeah. Right. Um, and yet somehow it pulls off a magic trick of like never laughing at it, you know? Um, yeah. Oh man. The moment you said that I could not help but think about our text exchange about um, Taika's Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's deeply on my mind right now. Yeah. Um, so again, May 4th, today was the day that uh, Taika was announced as co-writing and then directing a full feature Star Wars. Of course, not only, you know, Thor Ragnarok, which you know, secures him in the Disney lineup and, you know, Jojo Rabbit, which, you know, gets some Oscar nods. I think actually an Oscar and um, you know what we do in the shadows, which was his crossover or his breakthrough hit and all the stuff he's done before then. Um, Holy moly. You know, I, I think that that, I think that what, what we're, what we're talking about right now about, about uh, playing with and enriching, but also building from building on and moving beyond the source material without um, casting it aside, without um, denigrating it, without uh, looking down on it, is part of it. I think, I think there's something about this subverting of expectation that does that to your own material, to your own source material. When, mm. when, when the, the, the audience is shocked, when the audience's interest, even if it's momentary, is more important to you than continuity, I think that's kind of what we're talking about with these, with subverting expectations being more important than consistent uh, storytelling or continuity of character, any of these things. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm fully, I'm fully in agreement, and it's it's particularly interesting because, you know, from from the standpoint of thinking about experiential work. You know, that relationship of the audience to the material is one of the things that you're playing with, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you're not playing with the plasticity of those stances, if you're not playing with those perspectives, then you're kind of missing the full power of the experiential form. And I think there's, you know, I mean, I mean, and, and so much, yeah. I think of like the 90s, um, managed to be like this moment we were, were coming into in, in traditional media, you know, between Tarantino and then by the end when we get to the Wachowskis, where mm -hmm. we're, we're playing with the rules of the genre, we're commenting on the genre, we're toying with the expectations of the audience and we're teaching them rhythms or we're turning worlds inside out and upside down um, you know, it, it starts to feel like it opens the door for even 
bigger subversions of genre, expectation, everything. And I think... Wow, that, that's funny because right before you said the word bigger, I thought you were going to say the word superficial. Because well... In, in a sense, it seems like the process that we're talking about is a process of, I mean, the incursion of postmodernism into storytelling. Hmm. Uh, in the beginning, where it was still sort of like fun and interesting and um, and something that was really attended to and was new and kind of surprising to when it just becomes par for the course and then it becomes an expectation. Right. And then it becomes such an expectation that you have to keep topping it and topping it and topping it. So yeah. you're no longer like attending to the actual guts of the material you're working with just sort of hovering above it with new surprises and shocks and la 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 and, and increasing levels of, of ironic detachment yeah right and there's there's this moment oh god maybe like 10 years ago when like there was this buzz around the idea of the new sincerity and yes i remember that and there was something about that that i always found to be deeply cynical like i never <laughs> bought that the people who were talking about the new sincerity were actually sincere. Mm -hmm. I felt like they were, they were asking for like a meta level of irony. Right. And, uh -huh. and I think some of I'm that, yeah. And I think a lot of that came from a, a complete disillusionment. And I think that this move towards more subversion of expectation, like, mm -hmm. Okay, so you know how like uh, for like thespian initiation, like poor Adam Costello got like ublick in his ublack or whatever is in, in his hair, right? Like there was like there was like that's that's something that happened. Uh -huh. Like they 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 hazed him basically. Like like it was it was they were hazing things. I instantly slipped into like yeah. you know our high school friends. So those who are listening, sorry. So like theater initiation was was a form of hazing, and indeed, indeed, like you know. Uh, Zay and Mai's friendship can trace it back to what was essentially a narrative hazing incident where we, we staged a very, uh, where our thespian troupe at our high school staged a very elaborate, um, uh, you know, you'd call it one night alternate reality game now is how we we technically call it. Uh, but basically we took over a friend's house and, and did all this crazy kind of, you know, what we now would literally say, like kind of immersive theater shit, where we told all the poor thespian initiates that they were being, you know, in, in inducted into a, uh, an ontological terror terrorist cell, uh, for which for which Zay wrote the manifesto uh, called "The People's Front for Political Correctness," and we made Nick Hangola cry. Was he playing along though, or did we actually make Nick Hangola cry? I well, wasn't there because I was killed yelled. off in the first reel. Quote unquote. Yes. Yeah. Nick Hangola has yelled at me about that for years, but he may just want to have a good reason to yell at me, which is fair. But you know what? Maybe he also, maybe he also, like, like we, we may have actually upset Nick. Like, literally, like, you know, dickish things. We were also 15, 16, and 17. So it's like, yes. we were, we, we were teenage boys and girls. We, we had both <laughs> and we were all yeah. dicks. Um, this, 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 in fact, literally like the, one of the jokes was about like subverting the patriarchy by stopping the, the ball drop on new year's Eve. It was, it was kooky 90s shit. Um, from kooky's 90 kids. 
90s kids. And um, we, but it was still, it was hazing and it was, it was a little more refined, but there's this thing you do where like the world hurts you. So you hurt the world back. Even if the people mm-hmm. you're hurting are like unsullied by the world, you pass it down. That's what all these, that's what initiation often has been throughout the course of, of history. And people have been with good reason, so disillusioned, so beat down by the arc of history over the past 20, 30, 40 years. And let's be honest, hundreds of years, right? Like the older you get, the more you realize it's always been shit. But mm-hmm. we're like self-aware of the shit. And there's this, there's this cynicism that's so deep, it becomes meta. And the idea that, you know, expectations have to be pulled out from underneath you and that all of the rules we think we know about storytelling, all, all the things that like give us structure and meaning to our lives as meaning-making creatures, that those are lies and they must be assaulted because the world we live in is, is a lie to some degree. And, and it's not wrong, right? The world we live in is, it is corrupt. It is, you know, the eternal empire. It is, it is all these things that, you know, Philip K. Dick would like rant about. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're, I'm sorry, keep going. You're building up to a thing. But, but, but there, but there's also co-present with that is, is the other side of it, right? Like the dark side is here at all times and it's true. But the perennial wisdom stuff and the story structure stuff, the, the tools by which we actually make meaning out of our lives, those those do work. Those can work if you have the right intention to them, if, if you're bringing that. They can be used for evil, but they can also be used for good, and you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's where I was going. I, I agree. I agree. I, I do think, though, that I do think, though, that there is, I mean, look, X-Files happened. The Invisibles happened. Oh, yeah, it did. We live in a world where our president is a purveyor of conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. The, the, like, that, that there are certain parts of, of the power structure of the world that are opaque. Like, we, we, all, we know now. Like, we, we all know now. There's there's no shock to watching a story where you suddenly find out, oh no, that's not where the power is. That's where the power is. No, no, that's not where the power is. That's where the power is. There's no shock. There's no gnostic shock anymore. Mm. Um, red pill, green pill. Wait, red pill, blue pill. Yeah, red pill, Man. blue pill. Yeah. Like red pill, blue pill. We 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 all know. We've seen the Matrix, which is you know the Invisibles. Like we've seen it. We've done it. It's it's past. To, to use that as a piece of um, narrative power masquerading as wisdom literature, it just doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't hold the same power anymore, which is why for me, um, why I was thinking of the word superficial because these mm. undermining of expectations, they they happen to me on a much more superficial level where it's just a matter of trying to come up with a narrative engine that can keep up with, 
how quickly not just not just the audience but the internet digests things it's yeah. like a matter of trying to stay one step ahead um which loops back to lost because when it comes to when it comes to this when you're uh, when it comes to this practice of building your narrative energy on mysteries, expectations, and subversion of expectations in the world of the internet, um, as you said before, Lost definitely is patient zero. And the weird thing to me about Lost is that everybody seems to have learned the wrong lesson about Lost. <laughs> Which is that, oh, Lost just did the surprise thing poorly. We just have to learn how to do it well. And mm -hmm. that's how you make these new condensed serialized versions of TV shows. And what's weird is that the person who learned the right lesson about Lost was Damon Lindelof. Yeah. Because the next TV show he did solved all of the problems. And then the next TV show he did managed to support, subvert, deepen and transform source material that most would consider sacrosanct without somehow um with no wink with no and wink also understanding whatsoever. that every single mystery in the show would be figured out on reddit in 12 hours yeah and being but totally cool with that and being totally cool with that because like in ben-hur it. it's it's not about subverting the expectation. It's about how much richness can you bring to the telling of the story? Yes. Which, which brings me back to that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fuck yes. Because, because one of the places that is long preserved straight up storytelling is kid stories mm -hmm. um classic children's literature is is my 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 personal favorite thing you know like like uh uh never ending story alice in wonderland wonderland water babies narnia um those are my favorite things and when you're when you're pitching across the middle like that to use a sports metaphor uh, let's not use sports metaphors um it's really, really hard. And it's especially hard when you have previous source material to not end up being meta in a way that subverts what, what subverts the source. It was exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. And that DuckTales manages to pull that off, like that it's simultaneously straight up narrative, straight up um television series storytelling in a very old school way i mean everything's serialized now everything's either totally serialized or not serialized at all now right. on television and um and ducktales is is doing that like like that a story b story maybe a little comic bumper um usually the a story is a standalone story then the b story has something to do with the season-long arc um to introduce characters slowly to have every character have a narrative question that opens up and doesn't get closed for episodes down the line um 
that sort of stuff, when you're dealing with something this broad and when you're dealing with previous source material and to have it still be, I don't want to use the word, I'll just use the word, use the word sincere mm -hmm. is really, really, really hard. It's just hard. Like suspense is harder than surprise. It just, it just is. And, and I think suspense I think, is what straight up storytelling is about. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, you know, I don't have an answer here for why they do it so well, but I think maybe that's our question is, mm -hmm. is if there's a secret to McDuck Manor here, um, you know, what, what is it that l lets them get away with this? And the one thing I think of, the first thing that comes to mind is that the characters are so strong that each of them represents not only an approach to the world, but a really, a really active, curiosity is the wrong word, but like a really active relationship to the world. Mm -hmm. And that says something even more than about like, oh, what it is they want? But really says about like who they want to be at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And how can they just be more themselves? Right? Like each character seems yeah. to want to be themselves fully. And is looking for the moment to be them. I think that's really going to come into play with Lena. Not to not to give anything mm -hmm. away. But like only at the end of this episode do we find out that you know Lena's the niece of Magic and Spell. She's done this entire episode which really does feature some amazing designs and some creepy freaking moments. Uh particularly with the um I can't remember what the clown beagle boys were called at the moment, yeah. uh, but they, they're, they're terrifying. They're yeah. legit terrifying. And then they're felled by a cartoon gag, yeah. which is brilliant. Um, and, uh, and the going back to the deja, the deja vu, the deja vu brothers three times. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, which the first time I saw it, I was annoyed, but weirdly enough, the second time I was like, I love this. It's cute. Yeah, I know. Uh, it wasn't. I didn't intend to make it cute, but it, it's cute. Um, but this, this, this idea of, of, you know, in 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 visual art, it's about the silhouette of the character. But the silhouette of a character can also be something about the soul of the character. And these characters have soul. Mm -hmm. And yes, I just don't. Do. I mean, I don't know. I wish I knew. I wish I knew the secret to building a character with soul. I think that's why like, I don't write fiction anymore is because I don't feel like I could ever crack that nut. And if you can't make a Scrooge McDuck or, or, a, or a Jin Jaren, who is the name of the Mandalorian, or a, an OT Anakin Skywalker, or, or a Bruce Wayne, you know, or I don't know like a I'm, buffy i'm not sure i'm not sure either but i one thing that i do think 
is true about the kind of classical storytelling that we're talking about is that for it to work, especially in a relatively episodic television show, it, it's, it's when character and story and theme are all considered equal. When story or plot, and I mean, God, I don't want to have a half hour conversation about that, but we'll just say, I'll just say events, sequence, events, events in a right. story. When events, when the excitement of an event starts to take preeminence over, um, over character or theme, then you get things like, the last two seasons of Game of Thrones. Right. Like when when subverting expectations and that surprise or that shock are more important to the creators than the consistency and balance of character theme and story. It's like it I mean th- th- this is this is why Ben Hur keeps resonating for me because mm. there's nothing surprising about how that story goes. And yet it is profoundly satisfying uh, for me as a, as a viewing experience because it just deepens and deepens and deepens and deepens. And, and there's never a point where characters veer off to some crazy course. And there's never a point when their actions aren't totally on point for the themes. And there's never a moment where any of the events that I'm seeing are divided from the theme or the characters that I've gotten to know over the course of the story. Um, and it's hard to do. I, I imagine it's just very, very difficult to do. I wonder if maybe it's, I mean, two things strike me. One, maybe maybe it's just that like we're, culturally we're so far out of the rhythm, which is why it feels hard. And then another thing that came up when thinking about, you know, the, the superficial of 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 all this and the idea that something like the matrix just doesn't work anymore because we've seen it mm-hmm. you know but then there's also this flip of you know there's always a generation coming up there's always people mm-hmm. who are encountering all this stuff for the first time and because of because of the commercial mm-hmm. machine right there's there's always there's always a new generation to subvert right i mean there's even in the advertising for star wars like every generation has its story right and so there's there's kind of an arch formula there of like well every generation must you know be given its characters and then your characters worlds must be turned upside down and and then you know then it must be resolved right you know like in an attempt yeah. to figure out you know what the formula of of Star Wars is as opposed to it being yeah. you know the the weird monastic designs of a guy who likes going really fast. Um, although now it feels like, <laughs> now it feels like uh, it's going to be the weird monastic designs of a dude really into wolves. Um, Cause Dave Filoni's really being set up to be the heir. Like I've seen so many signs in the past week, like we've long talked about it, but it feels like when you, if, when you watch the BTS series for Mandalorian, like it feels like Disney's the Disney hagiography machine and the Disney, it feels like he is being anointed. Like, mm. like it is like it is a decision being has been made. Uh, one that'll make a lot of fans really happy. 
Um, uh, although I learned a long time ago to like, you know, see these people as humans and not as gods, um, unless they're Grant Morrison, but he's not really human. Um, sorry. Now I'm thinking about Grant Morrison. I, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I, I think though that, um, I think that it's true. Like there's a, like the way that these ideas and different forms of storytelling come out, uh, definitely do repeat. I mean, mm. is the invisibles, the Illuminatus trilogy, Sure. Are the Invisibles yeah, and Lon- yeah. Illuminatus trilogy um, Gnosticism? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Like all of these things, they cycle, but but it's not like um, like but they don't they don't cycle constantly. You know what I mean? I mean, hmm. I mean, it's not like every decade or every five years or every years or every year there's the Invisible Sauce, the Illuminatus trilogy. Like it, it, you know, it's Did- more like a some sort of sine wave or something. And I right. guess. Like they come, and, uh, they come when they and, when they're needed. Yeah, they arise. These yeah. stories arise when they're needed. And um, and man, if there's if there is something out there right now that is the, pardon me, the Illuminatus trilogy or the or the Invisibles for twenty twenty, someone please please tell me because I would love to read it. But is that even what we need right now? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what this moment calls for. Yeah, and I think I think I that, this moment is about praxis. Yeah, and I think like I think there's people out there who maybe Which calls for classical storytelling. Yeah. Wait, wait, so you said so praxis calls for classical storytelling? Yeah, mm. I think so. Yeah. Fuck yes. Because, no. Fuck yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So like you know, you know, up in my uh, in my Facebook this week, like I, you know, who cares. But I, I just declared out that I was just like I was over the election and that we just needed to like we just like get this thing done and then work on like what's next. Right. Like do what we got to right. do, even if it means choking down everything that's being force fed to us because we got to there's, there's a dragon to kill. And frankly, that's the most important thing. And then let's go, you know, beat up this this dumb paddy wagon that they've given to us and tear it to shreds. Right. And. Yeah. And someone was up in there being like, you know, I don't want to be nihilistic, but, you know, like if they say that if like 3% of the population is like totally committed to a course of action, that that's enough to like turn everything on its head. And like, basically there's no point they've won. Right. This is just what we got to live through. And I wanted, like, I could not respond to it rationally Mm -hmm. because I was so incensed by it. Um, and so I, I let it alone, let it alone. And then as I started to think about it, one, on the one hand, I'm like, that is so, one, it is so nihilistic. Like one, you're, you're totally being nihilistic there, Chris. Uh, not, not our Chris, a different Chris, uh, who's not listening to this, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but then like two, it's like, okay, He's well, if, if, nihilistic lately too. If, if it's only, if it only takes 3% or 3.5% or whatever the formula is, that just means you just got to find the right 3.5%, right? Like what happens? I mean, really what's going on? And I love that you said that praxis calls for classical storytelling. And this is something I've been feeling for quite some time. And and throughout the Obama era, era, like the Tea Party movement, the disease, the, the issue we're facing in America right now is the transition into a pluralistic society, one where there is no clear majority. And in a numeric sense. And and there's an open question 
for the history of humanity as to whether or not a pluralistic society can survive. I don't, I'm not a history person, so I think of all of the, the, the big societies over the course of you know, the history of the world, and I can't think of one that was truly pluralistic in a sense of power sharing. I think we, we are all aware now, those of us who are willing to be, as to how functionally pluralistic in the sense of the working classes and the laboring classes um, who, are, who have rarely been properly compensated one way or another, uh, that long have there been pluralities of people and that, you know, there were, there's, you know, you go back and you see that like Queen Elizabeth was, the first was constantly complaining about, you know, Africans being in her country, right? And like Rome uh, was not all built by people from Rome and all of these things. Um, when you, but the power was never pluralistic. And so we, we got to this moment where suddenly one of the most diverse cultures that's ever existed in, in, in the world, if not the most diverse, but, but definitely one of, was also the most pluralistic in terms of the distribution of power and it's a crisis, and it was always going to be a crisis. It was going to be an identity crisis for everyone who was in the majority because they don't know how not to be. And it's not something easy, it's not an easy transition. It's not an easy transition into power for the people who were not in power before. No one knows how to fucking behave in a plurality. And so we turn really to story. Want- Mm. I really want my response to what you just said to have something to do with Scrooge McDuck in class. But I'm not enough episodes in to be I don't, able to do it. I, 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 don't, I don't think there is something. At most, it might be yeah, something about working smarter I and not wish. harder. Um. <laughs> Which is the, the very theme of The Great Dime Chase. It is. It is. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I I don't know. I mean I I I don't know. Clearly we're in this moment where history really is in flux. I mean mm. before the novel coronavirus we were in what would be described if we were in like Egyptian history as like an interregnum period. We're in a period between two different things. We're in a period where um, power is in moderate flux because you have um, a president who really doesn't actually represent the real power interests in the country. And so he's very, very, very disruptive. And, but he's also Uh, I don't know the right adjective for him. A crazy sociopathic narcissistic shit bomb. Um, and so he's not really aligned with anyone, but he has all this power and people sort of trying to like use him to leverage themselves into positions. And now you have the novel coronavirus effects 
which are even more destabilizing and which are creating even more of like this open set of vectors. And I don't know. I mean, I like the plurality thing. I think if the electoral college didn't exist, then that would be more, then that would be much more, yeah, a great deal more of a possibility for a power shift to happen. I think that in order for it to really happen, then American exceptionalism really genuinely needs to completely die. Yeah. And I don't know that that can happen without some form of, I don't know what the death throes are going to be like. Um, I mean, we're definitely like when you ask, in the beginning like when you of the, ask the question. Yes, very much so. When you ask the question about plurality, um, that's a really interesting question. I have to think a lot about that. Um, but one thing that is true in many other countries that is not true in the United States, maybe this somehow dovetails into the plurality, in, into the plurality thing, is that the the set of options on the table for what to vote for are much broader it's not just option a or option two yeah and i'm not just talking about biden trump i'm talking about um american politics for most of its history there have oh, been yeah. two options well i mean that's or I mean, two that's... options and a crazy midget with a funny accent yeah i mean that's the <laughs> Now, 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 sit here, down in Texas. Um, <laughs> I still got my Perot. Um, well, that's the that is the the big fucking problem is that the political structure we have and the cultural structure we have are in absolute conflict. Right. Absolute, like the system does not serve the culture, and the culture does not serve the system. And one, this is why. This is why the Republican Party is obsessed with the culture war and why people like Steve Bannon are obsessed with the idea that politics is downstream of culture and why owning the culture and why why creating Alex Joneses and why creating alternate realities and, you know, fake news and all this stuff is critically important to them because they understand the power of story to galvanize the small chunk of the plurality they have, plurality they have, with enough right. consistency that they can stand against. It's like it's like a phalanx of Roman soldiers, and the rest of us are barbarians. They would love this metaphor, by the way. But let's make them Spartans. Let's go full Zack Snyder here, right? And so they're My out God. there with their shields and their spears and their songs. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I just every I I uh, no, that's a dear, my 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 the Spartans were a bunch of slave owning assholes rant. Yeah. Yeah. It's for a different time. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. There's like there's 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 yeah, yeah, the, the fiction versus the reality. But then they would also be very happy to know that, right? There's all these things where it's like it's like seeing when the yeah. numbers come around and everyone's like, oh, well, you know, we did we tested in the mission and we're seeing that like, you know, ninety five percent of the people who tested positive uh, for coronavirus in the Mission District of San Francisco, were Latino and uh, like no zero percent white people, and it's like really you know like we're not doing well for our working class folks, and it's like you tell that to the people who are protesting in Huntington Beach this weekend or in right. Wisconsin or whatnot, and they'll be like good, good, right? right? Like that you know oh are there going to be three thousand dead a week by the end of May? 
oh great, unemployment will yeah. never go up again, right? Like that's that's the little shift you do into that other reality, that, that shift you can do into right. that narrative. But like they're, they're cohesive narratively. My, I guess my point is, and, and the reason I got excited and got on this rant in the first place when you said that classical storytelling is praxis, or is what's mm-hmm. called for, the moment the calls for praxis, and that means we're, we're in classical storytelling, and, mm-hmm. and we're in this like, but but classical storytelling doesn't, we've sort of proven today, if you will, uh, is that it, that doesn't mean it's simple. Oh, God, no. No, it's, no, no, it, no, no, no. It can be no. incredibly rich, and it's about the yeah. resonances and the richness of of what you've made and that's what makes it good and and it means and it means that you that that the characters the characters who are who are <laughs> i don't even see the most reason rick and morty but the the characters who are who are stuck on the part of the narr on the on the car of the narrative train that is classical storytelling are in a situation where they must deal with the tools at hand they they can't they can't rip off they can't like reach through the fourth wall, grab a meta tool, pull it in and change their reality. They are in their reality. They are on the ground. Yeah. You know they are in a situation where they they see the cards and they have to choose from the cards and their and their hand may fucking suck, but they have to make that choice. And that's what I mean by 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 it's about practice. Like only only action in the physical world can move a character from point a to point b in the world of classical storytelling in the world of postmodern storytelling in the world of um uh subversion is the most fun thing ever and it's how you sell ticket storytelling and i love postmodern storytelling and i love surprise storytelling i'm i'm just we're just having this conversation and getting a camera converting a dress kind of way yeah um classical storytelling is 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 on the is on the ground storytelling you know maybe that's why i'm finding such comfort in it right now yeah is because it's it's not about the starkness of the choices it's about the fact that choices resonate and are rich and and belay belay mm, reveal there that's what i wanted Re- reveal <laughs> nice escape hmm nice escape yeah they they reveal um they re- they reveal the the power in those choices they reveal the 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 connections and then and the limitations yeah of 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 the now you know yeah that was a little circular by the end of it no but there and there are limitations there are real limitations yeah yeah our culture kind of tries to convince us that we have no limits. We're always told that. Yeah. Um, Which is probably why the thing we're experiencing right now, especially for the privileged, is such a deeply difficult experience. Yeah. Because some things 
sometimes they're just limitations. Yeah. Well, and not, and and it's a different kind of trauma for people who aren't exceptionally privileged because I think at 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 best it gets to be a, a stark reminder that you know if the house of cards falls it will land on you. Yeah, um, I mean, I didn't mean to. Yeah. To oh no, no, I didn't think you did. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, I think there's a much finer uh, and immediate and. Um, well, there's more surprise. Experience. I think yeah. there's. I think there's more surprise for the privileged. Yes. Right. Exactly. Because they're still they're 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 living in a space. Not free of consequences, but you know. I mean, just to put it to put it in like Hollywood terms. If you're a trust fund kid and your screenplay doesn't sell, oh well. Mm-hmm. I guess living off dad's money for a little while longer. Mm-hmm. And if you're a working class kid who's been doing rounds at comedy clubs and all this comes down and your screenplay doesn't sell, well, you don't you can't go to the comedy club to work anymore, right? Your waiting gig is gone. You can't weather the storm. Um, it's still, there's still no progress for either of you, but there's more of a slide back the farther down, you know, <sighs> luckily, woo. yeah, woo. <laughs> luckily there's, there, luckily there's a place where all of that, uh, isn't happening and that's Duckburg. Um, And when we return to Duckburg, um, we'll be returning uh, with um, a good chunk of what was the October 2017 uh, episodes. There was there was a weird time, too. Maybe that's also why I wasn't like, you know, jumping into the series. Um, And that would be. um, Oh, it's really interesting to see what the production codes were, because these production these were these were done very much. They aired in a great order but the production code is so different. Fascinating. Uh, I wonder what we'd like to watch them in production order, but that's neither here nor there. Um, we will be jumping into um, Terror of the Terror Fermians, episode five, AKA episode 110. The House of the Lucky Gander, episode six, AKA episode 107. Uh, and The Infernal Internship of Mark Beeks, episode seven, AKA episode 108. Um, all of which are, um, you know, they're pretty solid. I'm going to say they're pretty solid. Um, I'm really looking forward to the set after this, though. For Ooh, you to, for you right. to and, and those cover episodes that were like in October, December, and May. So it really stretches over a little bit farther. Um, yeah. This is good. This is delightful. There's no, I mean, there's no show that I'm currently watching that brings me just such a sense of delight and comfort both in the uh, the sort of uh the feel of the show and the characters and the very very straightforward storytelling um, yeah especially it, coming off of like watching an episode of rick and morty watching an episode of this is like uh a bit of a whiplash is rick and morty on is is like is a cable run right now or is like are they on are they on hulu yet these new episodes um, I'm watching on Amazon Prime and oh, okay. a couple bucks for it in SD because 
HD is another dollar. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. I, th- I think like in a couple days, I'm not sure how much time passes, but after some amount of time passes, you can watch them on the Adult Swim website or app. Okay. Without th- paying. Yeah. But I think it takes a few days. Okay. Well, maybe maybe I'll I'll dip in. I'm um, like I said, I binged through Normal People, which um, you know I was half hour long episodes, and it meant that I was crying, you know, on the fifteen on, on the tens and twenties, um, <laughs> and uh, did all twelve episodes in two days. Uh, just just wolfed nice. them down. Um, and yeah, and then like topped it off with like a, a whole lot of Star Wars. Let's like finished off finished off the Westworld. We'll we'll check in after we stop recording. Um, <laughs> God, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I've mostly I've just been been reading and then watching whatever AFI listed movie my girlfriend is watching uh last night we watched close encounters of the third kind Ooh, nice which uh i i might throw down and say that's the most baby boomer movie ever made um i'd buy that for a dollar yeah yeah i'd uh i'd i'd uh i mean you know richard dreyfus really is like oh He's like the baby boomer angry spirit animal. He's he's he is to baby boomers maybe what Aaron Paul is to millennials? Question mark? Or is he too angry? I think he would never allow himself. Mm. I I think I think the difference is that and maybe this is a ba- this is a boomer millennial difference. Aaron Paul can lead from behind so well and within the context of the story. Right. Whereas, whereas, whereas Dreyfus, no matter what role he is, it's clear that he thinks he's the protagonist, even in Jaws. <laughs> I know, yeah. it's the best. He really does think he's the protagonist and he's so not, to the point where he's not even cast in the sequels, right? I mean, come on, man. <laughs> Although that that's amazing, I think I think you could get a solid like three thousand word essay on comparing and contrasting those two people, those two actors. I mean, it's just it's just it's just top of mind right now because of our, our previous yeah. conversations. I don't think there's like it, it felt like a stretch when I said it, but I do think there but there might be something there. It's funny. Yeah, it is. Oh, it's definitely funny. All right. Okay, let's uh, let's let's shut shut this monstrosity down. Uh, until next time, Duckburg. Uh, Watch out for those race cars, lasers, and aeroplanes. And if you have to, rewrite history. That's good. That's a good that's a good tag. We should try to remember that we said that exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode, which features the tracks Battle of the Pogs, Poopy's Theme, The Adventure, and Dance Contest to the Music from the album Poopy's Incredible Adventures by Kumiku via the Free Music Archive and used under a Creative Commons license. Check out more at freemusicarchive.org. If you're just discovering this feed, we've got hundreds of episodes about everything immersive and a whole website, no proscenium that's dedicated to just that, all of which is made possible by our Patreon backers. 
Follow us at No Persinium on Twitter and Facebook, and learn how to support our work at patreon.com slash nopersinium. For Zay Amsbury, I'm Noah Nelson, and until next time, remember, any crash you can walk away from, 